Thank you, Brother Pete, and good morning. Back at you. When I mention, if I say the, if I mention the Lord's Prayer, what's the first thing that, that comes to mind to you? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that's good that that is the first thing. To, but really, that's, the, that's a prayer that was written for the disciple, or a prayer that was spoken by Jesus to instruct the disciples how to pray. You, we can continue to call it the Lord's Prayer, so no harm, no foul there, but it really is the prayer of the disciples more so than the Lord's Prayer. What we have in front of us today in John 17 is an actual prayer that Jesus prayed as the Son of God. We might think of it as the Lord's Prayer, truly the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's known by some as the high priestly prayer of Christ. It is referred to by others as the great prayer of consecration. Um, it is the longest prayer of Jesus that we have uh, in the scriptures. I assume that Jesus prayed more than what we have evidence of in the Bible, right? So safe to assume that Jesus prayed all the time. This is not the only lengthy prayer Jesus probably prayed. But it is the only one we have captured in the Bible, and it's, I think, the longest, most beautiful, most vivid expression of the relationship of the Son of God with the Father. And so, for those of you who are joining us for the first time today, we are studying through John's Gospel. We're in chapter 17, and really, we've been working from um, lesser importance to greater importance, from the end of the prayer back to the beginning. We listened and, and thought first about um, what Jesus prayed for his church, for us. And then last Sunday, we, we learned what he prayed for his first disciples. And then today, we're going to think about really the, the heart, the, the beginning of his prayer, the, what we probably should think of as the most important aspect of his prayer, the most important thing that he prayed. And so, as we're walking through this, we want to learn how to pray. We're, we're in the midst of this really this rich study on how, what is prayer for Christians? What is prayer? How do we do it? Why do we do it? And we've been thinking about that for the last few weeks. I think this is sort of the, the filet. This is the center cut. This is the part we don't want to miss. From Jesus, we learn three things in verses one through five about what prayer is and why we should pray. Number one, we learn why to pray. Secondly, we learn what to pray. And third, we'll look at how to pray. Why, what, and how. Let's pick up in verse 1 and think about why, 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 why would Christians pray to begin with? Why is Jesus praying? Verse 1 says, Jesus, when he had spoken these words, lifted his eyes up to heaven. Interesting there. Most of us close our eyes to pray. But Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and, and prays. He's addressing the God of the universe. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Now glorify your Son. So that the Son may glorify you. Now, by now, in our study of John's gospel, we know what this phrase means. The hour. The hour refers to the hour of his death. 
We've been discovering that along the way. So in the first half of John's gospel, uh, chapter 2, at the wedding, Jesus uh, says to his mom, I'm not sure why you think you should ask me to do this right now because my hour has not yet come. Remember that? Or in chapter 7, he says uh, to those in that moment, my hour has not yet come. So over and over again, we'll see it two or three times in the first half of John's gospel, my hour has not, my hour for what? what, what what's, what's going on? Well, the, as you read the gospel, the, the, as you read the gospel of John and you, and you see it for a li- the literary composition that it is, you start building this question in your mind, what's he talking about? What hour does he have in mind? In chapter 12, there's a turn. And you get into the second half of John's gospel, and the pace picks up, and Jesus is heading into the last week of his life, and as he enters Jerusalem, he says to Philip and Andrew, now the hour has come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. And by the time you get to chapter 17, verse 1, when he says the hour have come, he's essentially saying, Father, send me to the cross. I'm ready. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. Glorify yourself. Be glorified in my sacrifice. That's what he's praying. In, in, in this first part of the prayer, he is praying, be glorified in my sacrifice. I'm going to consecrate my sacrifice for them, Father. May it bring glory to you. Now, here's what is so insightful about this when you come in, it comes to our own prayer lives. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus knows he's on his way to a sure and certain death, and yet he prays. What a contrast with us. We don't, pray when, we don't pray when things are certain. We pray when things are in doubt. If I were to tell you that X and Y are going to happen tomorrow, 100% for sure, X and Y are going to happen, you should pray about that. You would say, a um, little head scratch, I, I don't think I feel like I should pray about that. Why would I pray? It's going to happen. But Jesus comes to an event that he is certain is going to happen and praise. There's something instructive for us here. The thing that would decrease our interest in prayer only increases Jesus' interest in prayer. The thing that would keep us from praying is the thing that motivates Jesus to pray. He wants to pray into the sure and certain will of God. I guess by now most of those of you who are going to see it have seen Aladdin, the new Aladdin um, with Will Smith in it. So if you're, if you're one of the kids here that has seen the new Aladdin, just you don't have to go real high with your hand because your parents might not feel good about that, but just give me one of these. I saw Aladdin. Could you just show? Okay. All right. Good, good. So... It's, I, I would encourage you to see it. It's good. I enjoyed it. Um, it's, you know, it's a remake of the, ancients, uh, the ancient tale that comes from the Arabian Nights. And, and my favorite song on the soundtrack, I've seen the movie and, and I like the soundtrack. My favorite song on the soundtrack is, is Friend Like Me, right? Friend Like Me is a great song. And so uh, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to be Will Smith this morning because although I, I want you to know, I really want to. I really want to break into that, but I'm, I'm going to just give you the soft version, okay, because we're in church and all that, 
Um, but here's, what, here's, here's how the song goes. All you got to do is rub that lamp, and then I'll say, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order. I'll jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. You kind of start to get the rhythm. You ain't never had a friend like me. Life is your restaurant, and I'm your maitre d'. Come whisper what you want. You ain't never had a friend like me. You ain't never had a friend like me. Listen, we pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the shah. Say what you wish. How about a little more baklava? You know that part? I love baklava. Don't you like baklava? Have some of column A. Try all of column B. I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me. It is a fun song. It is a really fun song. And it's a good movie. It is, however, a tragic view of God. You need more than a genie in a magic lamp. It is a tragic view of God. If, if we pray, if we pray like we believe that God is a genie in a magic, magic lamp and we just need to rub him the right way to get what we want, to get our three wishes and get what we want. What a contrast, listen, what a contrast between Jesus' reason for prayer and mine and probably yours. I mean, that really illustrates to me that most of us pray the most when we are rubbing the lamp. What a tragic view of God. What a limited view of God. We pray to, love the, we, we pray to, we pray to rub the lamp. We pray to make sure God knows what's on our hearts. Jesus prays the other way around to discover the heart of God. Let me give you some, some contrast. We pray for God to give us things. Jesus prays, as we study the life of Jesus, John 17, Jesus prays to find God in all things. We pray that God would give us things. Jesus is looking for God in all things. We pray for God to fix things. Jesus prays to commune with the Father. We pray for our agendas to be worked out. Jesus prays to conform his heart to God's agenda. We see prayer as medicine. We see prayer as a quick fix. We, we see prayer as medicine. Jesus sees prayer as daily bread, daily nourishment, as water that he has to have. So the first thing that we learn from Jesus is that we should pray to enter into relationship with God, to commune with God, to know him, to conform to his will and his ways. We sang last week, to Father, Son, and Spirit now, our souls we lift, our wills we bow. Remember that line? To Father, Son, and Spirit now, our souls we lift, our wills we bow. What is prayer if it's not the bowing of your will? The reason we teach our children to, to often, not always, but often, sometimes you can lift your eyes to heaven and pray, right, like Jesus, but, but other times we teach our children to bow, and particularly in the formative stages of prayer as young children, bow your head, close your eyes and bow your head. Why are we saying bow your head? Because we're trying to help you connect the posture of bowing your head to the bowing that should be going on inside the heart bowing my will. Bend my will, Lord. Bow my will to you. These are the kinds of things we learn from Jesus as we study his life of prayer and 
especially this amazing prayer of consecration. So why would we pray? We pray to commune. We pray to bow. We pray as an act of worship. What should we pray for? Here's the second thing. What should we pray for? What does Jesus pray for? We pray for a lot of things, and we, working backwards, we've already been forward in the prayer. So because we've seen this already, we know that he prayed for us. He prayed a number of things for us, and he prayed for his first disciples. And the kinds of things that he prayed for us and his first disciples were faithfulness, to, that the Father would keep them in his name, meaning faithful to the character of God. Uh, he prayed for allegiance to Jesus, that they might be faithful and loyal to him when he was no longer with them. He prayed for their gladness and delight, fullness of joy. He prays for their holiness and consecration. He prays for mission. Father, send them. The gospel's never just for us. Send them. So he's praying all sorts of things. But these are not, right, this is what we're learning today, these are not the first things that he prays for. What is the first thing that he prays for? And this, again, is instructive. What's the first thing that Jesus prays for? What's driving his prayer? Just in a word, scan verses 1 through 5 again, and just look for the word that you think is driving this prayer. One word. Glory. Glory is driving his prayer. Now, we've got to be careful here because Jesus prays for glory in a way that we should never pray for glory, right? Think about what's happening here. He's saying to the Father, Father, I'm ready Make me the savior of the world. We never, we don't, don't pray that prayer. Right? Don't ever pray that prayer. There, many of us are struggling. We're wanting to be saviors, but that, that's not a good prayer to pray. Don't pray that prayer. Don't, don't try to be anybody's savior, let alone the savior of the world. Don't apply for that job. So we do not mean that, right? Clearly, we don't mean that. In that sense, we should never pray for glory. That's a glory that only Jesus is worthy of. But there is a way that we should follow Jesus in praying for glory. We should absolutely learn from him to pray for glory because his prayer is in concert with so many of the great prayers of the Bible where, where in the great prayers of Scripture, uh, the people of God don't come to God and say, will you fix this, my circumstances, my problems, my, my issues, my relationships? They don't come to him like that first and foremost. They come to him looking for something else. Let me give you two examples, one from the Old and one from the New. Start with the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, surprisingly, the Apostle Paul, as he's praying for his friends at the church at Ephesus, and he's written this amazing letter, and he's telling them that I'm praying for them, he doesn't say anything about praying for their circumstances. He doesn't say anything about praying for their particular issues. What he really goes after in this amazing prayer in chapter 1, he says that the God, I'm praying this for you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, might reveal himself to you, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, opened, so that you might know and see the glory of God in Christ, the riches of his glory. That's what Paul prays. He prays for them to know something about God, to, to be captivated by a vision of the glory of God. That's really not what we expected him to pray for. Old Testament example. Moses, Exodus 33, Mount Sinai. He's going to go before the Lord. He's before the Lord. He's going to pray, and he's going to, I mean, surely they need food. 
They're in the wilderness of Sinai. They need food. They need water. They need technology that they don't have to live in a way. They're, they're, they're a, a, a people on the move now. And what, all, Think of all the things you would need to care for hundreds of thousands of people. And Moses doesn't ask for those things. He doesn't ask for water. He doesn't ask for food. He doesn't ask for basic technology and more new and better equipment. He says this in Exodus 33, 18, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. That is precisely what's happening in John 17. The great prayers in the Bible begin with or center on God's glory. Just go check it out. Look at all the great prayers in the Bible, all the archetypical prayers in the Bible. They either center on or begin with God's glory. Show me your glory. That, that is, so we should pray that way. That should teach us how to pray. It should govern the rest of our prayer requests in Bible study class, in community group, in one-on-one pairings. Like we should be thinking about this as a praying people to first see him as the Lord God Almighty and never see him as a magic lamp. Now here's the most challenging part, I think, of what I'm trying to do today, and that is to help you translate this into life in a very practical way because glory is a big church word and I want to try to bring it down to earth for a minute. So turn with me, make a right, and go toward the epistles. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So go past Romans and go to 1 Corinthians and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Many of you know this verse. It's a pretty famous verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18. The Apostle Paul says this, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. That is, the veil's no longer in front of us because we, Christ has come, he's been disclosed. We can now see the Lord of glory, Jesus himself. That's what Paul's saying. We behold, we gaze into the glory of the Lord and are being, mark this, are being transformed into the same image from one deg- degree of glory to another. We're being transformed into the image of the Son of God. That's what Paul has in mind. The glorious Son of God, the perfect version of humanity that you want to be but aren't, he can, you, you can be transformed into by, Paul's real interesting word here, gazing into the glory that is the Son of God. So the ESV has behold, some translations you have, it might say to gaze into, um, uh, other translations like the NIV say to contemplate to look with concentration and focus. One translation, the the CSB, the Holman Christian Standard, it says to look deeply into it like, like into a mirror. To gaze into Christ... To gaze into Christ, to look concentrate, like as if you were looking into a mirror. Now, don't do it right now because you're going to make the person next to you uncomfortable. But if you looked at the person next to you right now like you looked at the mirror this morning before you came to church, you think we'd all be comfortable in this moment? Like, Chase, take a moment and uh, wait. Okay, so here you are looking at the mirror, and then you look at your neighbor like that. That would be... Because what do you do before you came to church? You were checking yourself out in the mirror. You were looking for dandruff, depending on how old you are. You were looking for, for dandruff, or you were checking your teeth. Do you do that before you leave? 
Some of you ladies, you do that. You're like, check the mirror. Like, lean over. Honey, how am I looking? You check, check my teeth. You just, you look, I mean, you're looking at the details. You're pouring over yourself in the mirror. P-O-R-E. Like pores. Like pour, that's where the word comes from. Pouring over. You're, you're gazing, you're, you're really looking closely at. So Paul, here's the idea. Here's the idea. Paul says, you got me a little self-conscious up here now. I'm kind of, yeah, I'm good. You're saying I'm good from, from, you can't see my face from there. What are you talking about? Paul says, if you, Paul's describing the essence of how you get changed in the Christian life. Don't miss this. You don't get changed. You don't become more like Christ by doing things. You become more like the image of the Son of God by gazing into His glory, by gazing into, by focusing on who the Son of God is, beholding, look, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. He's talking about the Lord Jesus there. When you gaze into the character of Christ, when you gaze into who the Lord is, when you, when you really concentrate and focus, when you're captivated right? By the glory of God. That's where the essence of transformation, it's right here in the verse. Transformed into his image. Don't you want that in your life? Don't you want to be more like Christ tomorrow than you were yesterday? How do you get there? How do you get there? Like, if you want to be less, if you want to be less self-centered and you write that on an index card, don't be self-centered today, and you put it on the refrigerator, that's a good start, but it's not going to get you there. If you want to be less materialistic, you need budget restrictions, but that's not going to get you there. If you want to slay the monster of lust who lives deep inside of you, you're going to need more than covenant eyes and internet protection. Deep, lasting change. Listen, Deep, lasting change is only going to really happen. You're going to be transformed when you gaze into a more captivating vision, right? When, when the song we were singing earlier says, uh, you tore through the shadow of my soul. What is it that tears through the shadow of any soul? It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel of John's been trying to invite us into. And we, it says, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten. We gazed into, we saw, we walked with him. We touched him. We saw the embodiment of the glory of God. We saw the physical embodiment of the glory of God. We want some more of that. That's what the apostles were saying. That's what they were teaching. This idea of glory is notoriously elusive and I want to just bring it back down to street level for you here this morning. To, to, to be captive, to, to glory in something is to be captivated by it. To glory in something is to be fascinated. To glory in something is to be mesmerized by it. It's what happens to you when you get around a good bonfire. It's what happens when you go to the ocean. It's what happens when you get up to the mountaintop. You're captivated in that moment by something bigger. In the original Hebrew language, the concept of glory means weightiness or heaviness. Uh, the, the, the word kavod kind of conveys a, 
It conveys, and it can be translated in so many different ways, but it, it conveys a heaviness. It conveys a heaviness that imposes its will on what's around it. A weightiness and a heaviness that just cannot help but reverberate into whatever touches it. And it changes that moment or that thing, the, the heaviness and weightiness of God, the glory of God. That's the idea. Let me give you um, a really interesting example and and I, I think it'll kind of drive it home. Um, I'm not really a fan of older movies, black and whites, older black and whites or black and white movies. Vicky is. She enjoys that more. I have to work at it. But still, I was amazed by an interview I read this week about a woman who was a huge star, but for just a few years. Really interesting story. Um, she was a, a huge star on the rise, but then she suddenly disappeared from the pantheon of great actresses. I'd never heard of her. Vicky, I checked with her. Vicky hadn't heard of her either. Her name is, uh, her, her name was Louise, Louise Reiner. Have you ever heard of Louise Reiner? In 1936 and 1937, back to back, while she was in her 20s, she won the Academy Award for Best Actress. She was not necessarily supposed to win the second year. She won two years in a row. That had never happened before. In fact, has very, very rarely even happened since. Spencer Tracy, Katherine Hepburn, and Tom Hanks are the kind of people who have won it twice in a row. Other than that, it's a very short list. She was on her way to the top, signed by MGM. She was a rising star. And this was back in the day when the studio owned you. And so the studio owned you. They decided what role you would play. Uh, you lived on the grounds even. She, she lived in a mansion on the grounds of the MGM studios um, inside the compound with Joan Crawford. You'll, you'll recognize these names. Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, and Norma Shearer. She was this growing, growing actress, and on the, other side of, uh, uh, on the other side of her awards, the studio was pitching more roles to her, and she was declining them. And she said, I, I really want to, I want to pursue this. I want to pursue my, 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 my acting craft in this way, and they didn't, want, they didn't want her in those roles. They wanted her, my sense is, in a little more of the sex appeal roles, and she really wanted to explore who she was as a person, as an actress, and things like that. And so that word got back to Mr. Mayor of Metro, Goldwyn, and Mayor, MGM. And when word got back, in fact, she says in this article, I would encourage you to read it, it's a fun read, uh, New York Times article uh, back in 2014. When word got back to Mr. Mayor, these are her, her, her words, she said it went like a fire back to my, my lack of interest in these other roles, went back, like spread like a fire back to Mr. Mayor, and I was called to him, I was summoned to him. And he said to me, Mrs. Reiner, we made you, we can kill you. To which this 20-something actress replied, Mr. Mayor, you did not make me. God made me. And with that, she left. And that's why you've never heard of her. Because she went to be a wife and a mother and a mountain climber. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> like, she had other roles, but they were never really big Hollywood roles. Most Christians, listen, most Christians today are listening. Listen, 
most of us are listening to career voices and money voices and relationships. Career and money voices and relationships and other things that are saying, I made you and I can kill you. And you've got to come to the place as a follower of Jesus where you say, no, 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 no. My career, you don't make me. Money, you don't make me. Relationship that I think I have to have to be happy, you don't make me. No, 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 no. God made me. And I will find my greatest satisfaction in life when I give glory to God. When I'm driven by Him and not by all of these other would-be gods. These, uh, all of these other would-be gods that are saying, I've made you. I can make you and I can kill you. No, 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 no. The Christian says, you are no longer in charge of me. The glory of God is in charge of me. You will be transformed. Listen to this. You will be transformed into the likeness of what is most weighty to you. It's happening to you all the time. You're being captivated, controlled by the things that are most important to you. And the thing that is most weighty to you will remake you into its own image. Jesus alone wants to be the one who makes you or breaks you. In other words, before you pray for your circumstances, before you pray for your circumstances, listen, before you pray for your circumstances, take your intimidation, take your depression, take your anxiety, take your fears, and press them into the weightiness of God and say, you can't make me anymore. I'm going to let God remake me. Take your struggles, take all the things, the little things and the big things, and press them into the weightiness of God before you even ask God to fix them. Be amazed. Be amazed and be captivated by the glory of God. Jesus is captivated by the glory of God. You cannot leave this prayer. You can't leave the first five verses of this prayer and not see that Jesus is captivated by the glory of God. All right, I have to, I have to land the plane. Um, why do we pray? To commune, to know, to bow, to yield. Secondly, what do we pray? We pray for a captivating vision of the glory of God that changes everything. And here's the last thing, and we'll close. How do we pray? Now, so how do you pray? Let me, let me make it real concrete for you because if you try to see the glory of God in the abstract, you're probably going to struggle with that. If you try to see the love of God, the holiness of God, the beauty of God in the abstract, you may end up discouraged or overwhelmed. Let me, let me get you back to something that's a little more tangible. If you look carefully here at John's gospel, what you're going to see is that you're being invited into the glory of God, not in the abstract, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the story of the gospel is about. And the story of the gospel is the story of the plan of salvation. So let me give it to you very briefly and we'll close. What's being described in verses 3 through 5 is glory, glory before creation, glory that was stolen by creation, and glory that is restored to all creation. You can see that movement in verses 3 through 5. Glory before creation, glory stolen by creation, and glory restored. Verse 5, it says that the Father and the Son enjoyed perfect harmony and love and happiness 
before creation ever occurred. He didn't need us. He chose to create us and invite us into this amazing story that Jesus had with the Father before the world ever existed. Well, the Son, let me say that correctly, the Son of God had with the, with the Father before the world ever existed. But then something happened because the world that he created that was supposed to reflect glory back to him decided, now we don't want to reflect the glory back to the God who deserved it. We'd like to keep it ourselves. We'd like to build a tower, make our name great. We'd like to live for our glory. And so glory was stolen by creation. Glory thieves. The whole world become glory thieves. Verse 2 says, all flesh, right? All flesh that should be under the authority of God. Jesus now has to come back to and have authority over you, Father, have given me authority all over all flesh to make this right. So that's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to restore on the cross. And the way he's going to do it, he's going to empty himself. This is so crazy. He's going to empty himself of the very thing that we wanted to cling to. And he's trying to tell us something. So he empties himself of his glory, comes down here in the incarnation. And not only that, that's kind of phase one, empties himself of his heavenly glory in the incarnation. But phase two, he empties himself in the, the ugliness of the cross. Phase two. This, this is John's argument in his gospel, that God is glorified in the shameful, horrible, ugly death of his son on the cross to point out that we should have never taken the glory to begin with. That's the only way the glory gets restored. You were made for glory. I want you to know that this morning. You were made for glory, but you weren't made to keep it. You were never made to keep it for yourself. You were made to reflect and image the glory of God back to the great maker and the glorious God of, of forever, past and future, but not to keep it. And the story of the gospel is that you can discover all of that if indeed you yield to the glory of Christ and if you'll trust your life, yourself, your soul into the hands of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for that and then we're going to sing. Um, and so we, we, we'll pray, and then we're going to sing a song of response, and then, and then we'll be dismissed. Oh, Jesus, thank you for restoring glory to a bunch of glory thieves. We don't even know how to live, and you laid aside our distorted version of life you laid aside your glory to rescue our distorted version of life. And God, we thank you for that. Jesus, thank you for laying aside your glory, emptying yourself to bring us back. We pray this morning that you would help us to see, God, help us to see. Oh, help us to see the things that have been weighing way too heavy in our lives and hearts whether it's career or money or relationship or uh, uh, sports or 
have, making this amazing progress in this particular thing and being the very best in the world. God, free us from that. We pray that you'd remake us into your image. We pray we'd be captivated by the glory of God. We would behold, we would gaze into it, and we'd be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's what we long for. We pray that you would help us this morning. And help us to voice this as we sing with integrity, we pray in Christ's name. Let's sing it. Let's sing the gospel this morning.